Welcome to episode 14 of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I'm your host, Krithage Varn, founder and financial planner at White Coat Financial. On today's episode, we're joined by the one and only Dr. J.P. Patta, a psychiatrist from Abbotsford, British Columbia, who has a specialized focus on addiction psychiatry. Dr. Padda shares his path to psychiatry and how he developed a passion for addressing addiction, a field that's both challenging and fulfilling. But our conversation doesn't stop there. Dr. Padda is more than your traditional physician. Off-duty, he transitions from doctor to actor, gracing our screens in popular shows and films like Supergirl, Debris, and Superhero. When he's not exploring the human mind or captivating audiences, Dr. Padda is a fitness enthusiast and can be found practicing MMA, boxing, running, and even nailing some backflips. All this while still finding time to cherish moments with his beloved wife and daughters. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Did a lot of like fun or interesting extracurriculars that I'll be very frank, you don't see brown kids doing. Um, <laughs> And I was like, oh, this guy's parents were awesome. Yeah. So, like, I don't know, if, if you don't mind, for anyone who isn't aware, could you give me a brief intro of, like, your background, where you grew up, where you're from, yeah. um, and even maybe touch on, like, some of the things that you were into growing up, because it's nice to see you've actually continued with some of those hobbies that you had as a young man or a child into adulthood. Yeah, definitely. And, and, I, and I'm appreciative of that and grateful for that experience, because you're right, a, a lot of my experience is not the typical like brown person experience growing up and i have to thank my my mom for that and uh she was two when she moved to canada so she had a, a little bit of a different perspective than a lot of the parents um of kids kids or people you know in our age group and um so she put me in gymnastics from a very young age and i did that for a long time all the way up until i was 18 and I wasn't, I'm not built for gymnastics. Like I get very motion sickness. I'm not like the most slender uh, person. I don't have the, the the right body type for it. So it was a struggle and it wasn't my favorite thing growing up, but it did teach me a lot to um, do things you don't like or train really hard, uh, get over fears and things like that. So it, it was helpful in that sense. And, and I did enjoy aspects of it. And I did go to like nationals later on. And I think once I started getting to the swing of things, no pun intended, I was much later and when I was ready to stop. So it's a part of my life that, you know, there are the things I've changed about it. Yeah, I, I wasn't like my, my favorite thing, but I learned a lot from it. And then the martial arts stuff is also because of her and, and my dad, they had the interest in him. Uh, I also watched a lot of martial arts movies growing up. So Jackie Chan movies, I don't know if you're a fan or not, but that was like a staple in our house growing up. And I love that. I, I think I loved it. Well, I know I loved it more than gymnastics growing up and uh, dabbled in karate early on. And then I did it till like 12 and then um, uh, stopped for a very long time. And then I started in my early 20s again doing uh, Wing Chun because I had a relative who did that. And then I stopped. And then when I was in residency, um, midway through, I actually picked up jujitsu because there was a gym um, not too far away. And uh, Conor McGregor was kind of on the come up and I'm a huge fan. I know he's kind of out there now and doing things are kind of uh, inappropriate for lack of better words. So, but he really inspired me to kind of pursue what you want. And I, I had an interest in that. I never thought I could do it. And so that, that pushed me to do that. And then it kind of went into MMA from there, which I kind of dabble in now, just, I, I won't fight or anything like that. And I don't train enough to do it, but I, I love it. And 
Um, and I think it just stems from just that love of those type of movies and, and Power Rangers and things like that. So I kind of carry that through childhood. And um, I, I didn't answer your original question. So I was born in Alberta and I lived there only for two years and moved to BC with, with family where most of my family was. And uh, I grew up in Surrey up until 12. And then we moved to Abbotsford. Then I onward 12 to 18 or so. That's where, where I lived and grew up. And um, and just really a regular upbringing. I mean, nothing uh, abnormal or crazy going on, which is really nice and I'm thankful for. And my, my parents, I think, did a good job exposing me to a lot of these extracurricular things. Um, but the reason why we moved too, which is I guess is kind of important for this podcast as well, is that my dad was an RCMP officer before he became a physician. And so early in my life, I didn't see him as much because he was busy with residency and then working. And that's why we moved to Abbotsford from Surrey because he moved for his, his job. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of a, a, a different road of going about, about things. And, and then my mom also got me into acting at a young, young age. I apparently told her I wanted to be on TV and uh, she was at a dinner with someone who was an actress and she talked about an agent and then she learned kind of how that would work. And then I had an agent at a very young age, but at that time there wasn't very many roles or opportunities for minorities. So I didn't really do too much and maybe do like a couple of background things. And then I tried again later as a teenager when I was like 17 to 18, I didn't take it seriously. I kind of just showed up for like the few auditions there were again, there wasn't that much opportunity and um, yeah, I was just like film and stories and I didn't get into the nitty gritty of those things until now where I've had some experience acting and things like that. But I got into acting now at, uh, after residency and fellowship and I didn't have kids at that time. So it was very different. I had a lot of free time and I was kind of sitting around like playing FIFA and I'm like, is this all there is? I should be doing something more. And I, it was always on my mind. And so being in Vancouver, this is Hollywood North. So I thought I might as well give it a go again and take it seriously and be more mature about it. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I have a tendency to just like, bleh, like, you know, that is, out. it's perfect. It's perfect. Cause man, there's so much to unpack. There's, there's like the <laughs> six things I want to talk about, but number one, I actually didn't know your dad was uh, a physician as well. Was your dad born and raised in Canada or did he, you know, grow up in India and then come to Canada after? Yeah, so he moved when he was about 12 or 13. And so also that kind of gives a different perspective, a uh, different cultural aspect of things. You know, he had uh, Indian background, but grew up here. And that was something that was, it was kind of hard for me too, because I'm not that culturally inclined. I don't, I speak Punjabi, but terribly, like I can do some consults and things in Punjabi, but it's like, it's very bad. It's very poor. I have a thick accent and I, it's broken sometimes as well. So it was hard to fit in with like sometimes uh, kids around my age and then also with uh, non-minority kids because you're still a minority. So that was a little different growing up, but uh, I'm appreciative of the, the things I did get because like you said, I probably wouldn't do, you know, gymnastics or martial arts as, as much or even the acting wouldn't even have come up or even the the possibility of those things too, if that makes sense. Yeah, because yeah, like, for example, if I don't know, thinking of like my friends or even my family, like if I told my mom I wanted to be an actor, she would have just like laughed at me. But like, yeah. what are you, Sunny the Ol or something? Like, she would have <laughs> just made fun of me. And it would have been this thing. 
like obviously she's supporting i don't want to yeah, say yeah, that yeah. but yeah. like no you're gonna go play soccer like all the other 30 of your cousins who play soccer because all we <laughs> do is buy cleats and right, right. pop you off and then we're good yeah. um but it, it's really cool that you had that experience um and to speak on that of like yeah maybe if you don't speak Punjabi as well or something like that you probably were in this weird dynamic where you're like not I'm just gonna be honest not white enough for the white kids <laughs> but not brown enough for the brown kids and you're like this weird quasi in between kid um yeah so it is a little bit tougher being like that it's cool though now because I think a lot of the kids that uh, I've come across through work and stuff like that, they're growing up like I grew up um, a little bit closer to that. So I can relate to some of the issues or problems that they're having and, and can really understand where they're coming from. So it's kind of helpful in, in that sense. And it's interesting to me to kind of see the challenges that they bring up or thoughts that they have. And don't get me wrong, my parents are still brown parents to a certain degree. And it's funny, like you hear certain things come out sometimes. And it's like the whole doctor thing, right? Like doctor, lawyer, engineer, it's there. It's there. <laughs> it's what it is. But there's a reason why I didn't become an actor right from the get-go too. You know what I mean? So that actually leads perfectly into my question. Cause I was like, yeah, they're probably like, okay, you could do gymnastics and acting and all this stuff for now, but you gotta be a doctor. And so that like that was my question is what made you decide on medical school? Was it was it the influence from parents? Did you know from a young age this is what you wanted to do? Um, like maybe walk me through that decision. Yeah. And I think it was probably always there because my dad was a doctor. Right. And then if you ask my mom now, she'd be like, no, you could have been whatever you want. <laughs> you know, it was always that push was there. And I'll, I kind of thought about when I was when you brought up these questions, a podcast I've done before, it's always about the addiction stuff or like mental health stuff. I never talked about myself too, as much, just very briefly, but I'll be very candid because it might help someone else. I was a terrible, terrible student. High school up until grade 11, I was pretty good. Grade 12, I did terribly. Just kind of like that transition period of teenage years heading into adulthood and kind of floundering. And I went to a very small school. There was only like 24 people in the class and it didn't really prep for university very well. And, um, you know, I, I my grades suffered so much. I, I got into UBC, then I, I lost that. They're like, oh no, you can't, your grades suffered too much. You can't come here. So I went to UFD and, you know, my dad's heart was in the right place at the time, but he put me in like five courses with three labs, like right off the get go. And I, I'd, uh, I failed almost everything. It's English. <laughs> it's like, I barely passed that. And I just wasn't prepared. And it really like kind of it it was it was shocking and it probably shocked my parents too even though uh they didn't like directly say it so medical school was always back here right that was kind of like what i was being pushed to do but i clearly didn't have the grades and i was kind of my didn't know if i could do it either and then at that time i'd known people who had gone to caribbean schools i had some cousins who went and my parents also knew some people and my uncle he had a um medical school friend who was starting a school in Aruba and he told my dad about it and they needed students and so uh, it was a bit easier to get in at that time you just kind of had to write an essay to look at your grades and like you know if you can unfortunately I'm, I'm, I'm just again being very candid here it's like you can pay the tuition you can come and, and give it a try kind of thing and um it was brand spanking new. So the school wasn't established at that time. And I went there and I, I went with a new perspective of working harder. And I, I um, was furious about it when I went. And there, because the school was new, there wasn't um, anyone who got residency in Canada or moved to Canada. And that was the ultimate goal to go back home because 
you know, I was a, still, again, brown kid thing. I never really left home before. Of course, I was homesick and I'm still close with my family and I always wanted to go back. And then I had a, a girlfriend at the time who's my, my wife now as well. And so um, I wanted, wanted to go back and uh, I switched schools because uh, I had heard of a school that was, again, taking students and they were more established and then people had gotten into residency from there. And so again, write an essay, um, say why you want to get in. They took those grades. And that was Windsor University in St. Kitts. And that's where I finished my medical school. So the first two years were on the island um, in the Caribbean. And then the second two years were in the U.S. for clinical experience. Um, so to, again, to answer your question, there was that push to to get into it. It was kind of always back there. It was kind of expected without you know openly saying it. Um, and that's, that's how it was kind of by chance to a certain degree that I actually got in and I did pick up the slack as I went along, but I did struggle. So I say this, that if anyone is struggling or thinking about it, you can be successful because you still have to do all of the, uh, board exams that every doctor has to do in Canada and in the U S. So you still have to go through a rigorous, you know, qualification process to make sure you, you're up to speed and I don't want to freak any patients out out there yeah. I did very well on my tests and things like that but again I say this because people especially young people I think that 19 to like even 25 age can be so difficult to navigate the expect expectations of self expectation of families and society and how successful we're supposed to be how smart we're supposed to be it can be a lot to, to handle and uh, you just you have to just chip away at it and, and go through the process and and be okay with failing and and you can still persevere. That's what I wanted to bring that up. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I, I'll be honest, most of the clients I work with or obviously doctors I've talked to, like 90% of them were so driven from like high school onwards. Yeah. They were involved in all the clubs, yeah. they had the top grades, half of them were athletes. Like they were like these picture perfect kids on paper. Mm -hmm. And I know that it isn't the case with all of them, but there was a lot of them who were like that. Yeah. And I find that, it's so nice hearing your perspective on that because not everyone was this straight A student or wanted to become a doctor since they were a little kid or, or whatever the case is. It's nice hearing this variability in that, hey, you don't have to have it all figured out at like 18, which is exactly what you were. You didn't have it all figured out. You struggled. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice knowing that you can persevere. You can overcome those hurdles. Um, and like you said, at the end of the day, there is one standardized test before you actually become, you know, an attending physician or anything like that. Right. There are those board exams. So if you're a late bloomer, it's not a big issue. It's okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Late bloomer, perfect word for it. And I was certainly, I would say a late bloomer a lot of my life. Like my, I'm, I feel like more, uh, engaged in my work, more, more passionate, more healthy than I was in my early twenties. I'm in my mid thirties now. So yeah, I think, uh, definitely, uh, there's no <clears throat> perfect timeline. There's no, that you have to follow. It's kind of an individual thing for sure. Yeah. And it's nice knowing that there's multiple routes to the same path. You know what I mean? I think not everyone has to go through the standardized, you know, you go to UBC, Go to UBC Med, you start practicing, you do residency in Canada, and then become a physician. Like one of my other guests who's, uh, I haven't released the episode yet, but his name's Dr. Rajdeep Sangha, and he had this sort of unorthodox path, but he still got to where he wanted to go, and that's okay. It's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, make or break. You don't have to follow the path absolutely 100% correctly. Um, right. There are multiple ways to get to where you want to go. So it's super important. I'm glad you actually shared that.
Yeah, yeah. I was I was thinking about it. Like, should I? Shouldn't I? But I'm glad. Thank you for for validating that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of how I I ended up there. And you pick up the slack and, and learn as you go. But you have to be serious too, and still put in, in the work. And it takes takes time, like like anything. But I did like in terms of psychiatry, I never got into medicine thinking I would do be in the mental health field. I kind of figured that after doing. Um, uh, the clinical rotations and I thought about family medicine or psychiatry and with family medicine I found a lot of the patients were coming in for uh, mental health issues anyway so I was like well if I'm doing that all the time anyways and then you can do it for a long time and force lifestyle kind of comes into play as well and a lot of people ask me like as a Caribbean student did you just do psychiatry because less people want to do it so you have a higher chance of matching. That wasn't that wasn't the case. I'm lucky that that yeah. just worked out for me, and I liked it. But you kind of also go through medical school, and they tell you in, in your clinical rotations where you feel most comfortable, where you feel most engaged. You know that kind of like the field that probably speaks to you. So it kind of chooses you to a certain degree, and I think that's just that's just what happened for me. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about just yeah picking your natural strengths, whatever field that you're just more gravitating towards or where you're getting more reps in, I would argue that's the field to go into because I'm a big believer in that you don't actually start out with a passion, you do something for a long time, you suck at it, and then you get better at it. And then it becomes something you're passionate about. So yeah. wherever you're getting more of your reps, that's probably going to be the field that you, you get better at, and as a result, are more passionate about over time. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good point too, is like, we live in this like culture, especially with social media now, it's like, I'm living my best life and I'm so passionate about this. And it, it kind of, it's kind of a, I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it professional, but it's kind of, it kind of uh, messes with people's minds a bit that, uh, again, that expectation that everything's supposed to be perfect, right? I like that, that, that outlook that you find the passion and then it, and then you build on that versus my passion was always there from when I was, when I was conceived, you know, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I don't if you're think. lucky, maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. Like if you're lucky and I think a lot of that, not to get like political here, but there is a lot of privilege in that as well. If you find a passion and then those, you know, those flames are fanned by your parents and they support it. And like, there's a lot that goes into that. Most immigrant parents are so busy with their own lives. Maybe they don't have the time to, to walk you through your passions or maybe can't afford your passion maybe your passion's painting and they're like no kid i need you to become a doctor because i need someone to retire me because i work at a <laughs> sawmill like that's the classic story with with half my clients so i fully agree that passion is something that has developed over time and, and you can always go back to other passions as well you can have more than one just like yourself yeah. um I, I did want to talk a little bit about your brother because you guys are both psychiatrists mm -hmm. um and i would assume he had a similar upbringing or at least logistically a similar upbringing on paper yeah. um was it planned that he would go into psychiatry as well or did he just see what you did and was like that's a great path to go down and you don't yeah. need to speak for him but how is it <laughs> having a brother who's a psychiatrist as well? well it's awesome because we work together we, we're very close we're partners with we, our practices together we do the addiction portion together as well as our general psychiatry consult service too and so we balance ideas off each other a lot um if we have a difficult case we can work together on it kind of say oh what would you do here kind of thing um and i don't know you'd have to ask him like did she, i never asked him before like do you have a, a passion for this or did you get into it because you know being an img can be a struggle too and of course you put in a good word for him at the residency program and 
um, and then hope, hope, hope he gets in kind of thing. And, but he also did the same fellowship as, as me as well. And, you know, we're so similar that'd be interesting if we weren't together, would we just have the same trajectory or not, regardless if that makes sense? Like if you were from some other family or if I were, so it's hard to know. We're very close. So it's not a surprise we did the exact same thing, but you know, I'll have to ask him. I've never actually asked him that late. Yeah. I know that he does love what he does, what he does, but where that stems from for him personally, I never really asked him that. So I'll have to ask him, ask him. You're older, right? I am older, yes. Two yeah, years if, older. I, if I was the big brother, like, you're just a copycat. You wanted to be <laughs> now, now you're doing what I'm doing. So <laughs> oh, I, I didn't want to say it. You said it. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he's gonna message me later and be like, what the hell, bro? Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> but I, I guess fast forward to now, you guys are both practicing. Maybe you could tell me about, you know, what your current practice looks like in addiction psychiatry and maybe even walk me through what a typical day looks like. What do you specialize in working with? Tell me more about your current practice. So um, we, like I was saying earlier, or we do general psychiatry consults and then we do um, uh, OAT treatment, which is opioid, opioid agonist treatment. Um, and that, it makes up the bulk of our work. And he does a lot more general psychiatry than me. So for my week personally, like my heavy days are Monday. That's when I do my psychiatric consults and I might do some follow-ups in between. Um, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I work in the O clinic. So we do methadone and Katie and Suboxone helping people with opioid addiction. And, um, that makes up like the typical week. I leave my Fridays open, um, where I may see people or not. And the reason for that, for me personally, is because I do the acting and it's very, uh, at the drop of a hat, they can have like your own set tomorrow. We need you tomorrow because you auditioned for this thing two weeks ago where you got to do wardrobe tomorrow. So I do that to move things around when I can. And the acting is so hit or miss that I can never know if I'm going to be working or not. I mean, I'm on a bit of a drought right now. It's been a couple months since I've actually filmed anything. But there, last year there was, uh, you know, it was like kind of like every couple of weeks I was doing something. So it was hard to commit to my practice fully, if that makes sense. So I don't do it full time, I would say in comparison probably to other people in our, in our field for sure. Mm. But I will pick it up more now because at this point with my uh, acting career as well, I'm not going to be doing commercials as much anymore. So that, that decreases the audition load a lot mm. and then gives me more time. Um, and we'll just probably focus more on the TV film aspect of things as long as I can. I also have another third little one coming. So it's kind of hard. It's a bit of a balancing act. And I feel like I'm spinning a lot of plates a lot of the time. So it, uh, it, I'll have to see how it goes later. If I will move more towards my, uh, my practice in the future. And a typical day, like I, I start with the heavy psych days. I start at nine and then some days I can finish at like 5 30 and I'm just kind of working through the day because we take an hour and a half for our consults we really want to get to know the patients where they're coming from and get a full you know body uh background from them and that can take some time and then uh, with notes and everything like that in between so we don't see too many people in that that time but we we spend a lot of time with with the patients as well and the oat stuff's a little bit quicker and a lot of that can be by telephone as well because of the nature of the beast with addiction you can catch people in a very small window 
And I, and I kid you not that they can come in and say, I, I need help, I need treatment. And if they wait too long, they're like, I'm, I got to go use. I'm sorry, I'm not going to stick around. So um, sprinkled through that too is a lot of phone calls and managing through tel telehealth as well. So, and that can be like, I don't want to say we're on call 24-7, but we are mm -hmm. intaking people on the weekends and holidays and things like that when we can. I'd love to say that I do it all, all the time, and but we do as much as we can. So um, kind of around the clock, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it does seem like a profession that, yeah, you have to be on 24-7 because the nature is very similar to being an eMERGE. Someone's calling you with a problem that they have, and if they don't hear from you, maybe that's the difference between them using or not. And yeah, not yeah. to get too deep, it could be a life or death situation because maybe that's the day they overdose. And I was going to actually ask you about that is how do you turn that off? Because I would assume, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's probably a sense of guilt when you turn off your phone or turn, you know, stop working. Yeah. And that's one thing I've struggled with probably over the last couple of years specifically, just because you know, with kids, it gives you a very different perspective of working with people. And everyone starts off as with as a child and no one ever grows up saying, I want to grow up and be an alcoholic or I want to grow up and be an opioid addict or, you know, I want to live on the streets. It's never happened before. And so it is really difficult to, you know, turn off the phone and say, uh, I'm not doing calls right now or I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm busy right now. I will come back to this. And the way I've kind of, I guess justified it to myself is that if I don't take care of my own mental health to a certain degree, then I'm not going to be as available for people um, moving forward either. And I don't want to half-ass the job either. Yeah. That's not helpful. And it is, it is tough. And you're right. It can be, uh, it can be a life or death thing. And especially now the drugs have changed significantly over the past few years. And even after COVID, because before, it was heroin before and then it becomes fentanyl and then you have carfentanil and then because of the drug supply chain you have uh, benzodiazepines in the supply and now there's like more tranquilizers in there and because they all work differently on the brain in different areas um narcan which is kind of the the antidote or like the life-saving um medication we give to people who are overdosing on opioids it doesn't work because these other drug mixtures work differently on the brain that are not going to respond to that and that's why we've seen an increase in the overdoses and um it's yeah it is scary so i the way i kind of think about it is i can only do as much as i can yeah I, I would, I, sorry go on yeah no, no I, if i was to work around the clock i don't know uh if i would be as valuable to people as I, you know I would echo the same thing based on my experience of chatting with you know individuals in your situation where I give this example a lot of, I don't know if you're into Marvel movies or anything, but you know, yeah. it's Spider-Man, he sits, at, I don't know, let's say he just caught someone and he sits on top of a roof and he sits down, he's tired and he's like, oh man, like I just got beat up or whatever the case is. And then he sees a cop car driving by. He's like, all right, put the mask back on, time to get going again. It's it's the same thing in medicine or just honestly, most healthcare professionals is yeah. I can't tell you how many clients are like, hey, good age, can't make our meeting today. Someone walked in last minute. I'm going to be here for an hour and a half. There's an emergency situation and I'm all for that. But to an extent, I feel bad because you have to learn to detach or you have to learn how to say no, because you you hit the nail on the head. If you just do that forever, there is endless police cars, if we're speaking metaphor. Yeah. There is endless problems you have to solve. There's millions of people who need your help, not just in Canada, but around the world. But 
at a certain point, you do need to make sure that your cup is full before you start pouring into others because the job requires so much emotionally, you know, and it, it weighs on you, especially addiction psychiatry more more than other professions. I would reckon, I would argue. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it can be tough sometimes, and I think in residency, I was just kind of going through the motions, and, and I didn't have kids at that time. I was younger, and when you're kind of in a culture where everyone's kind of have a, has a block. I guess you can adapt to that too, but you know, it's, uh, it's certainly been more difficult in, in recent years. And I think it's even been more difficult after doing some acting as well. And, uh, I did a movie where I was like, uh, someone who struggled with depression and grief as well. And I think that unlocked some things kind of up here for me as well. Um, so it's interesting, um, to think about that, but I like that analogy and having, my cup full so I can pour it for others and I have experienced that kind of burnout as well and especially like it, it's not just in the addiction realm of things but with COVID in recent years you know the whole healthcare system and especially in Canada there, there's an overload as well right and if you do get into medicine there is that aspect of wanting to help others that's why we we do a part of the part of the reason and maybe different amounts for different people but it's still there and so there's that inclination, but I, I'm a huge Marvel fan. I'm a huge superhero fan. Um, this is my brother's office. I'm, I'm here because my kids are here and the dog there, they would have interrupted this like 20 minutes ago. Like it would have ruined the podcast, but we love, uh, I mean, I can't, I can't turn the computer, but I do find inspiration in those things. And uh, I don't know if you watch the Hawkeye show, but there are aspects of the job where you just got to answer the call sometimes. So, yeah. And, and there is obviously it's like, it's not a secret. It's very well known that physicians and just, you know, doctors across the board from different disciplines deal with a lot of burnout. They deal with a lot of mental health issues, surprising, not surprisingly, but it is very common. And people think, Oh, like you're a doctor, your life's great. It's like, no, I have, endless amounts of work yeah and there is guilt with not doing the work i don't know if you work for microsoft mm -hmm. no one's gonna die if you don't put in those extra few hours or you know there's not this huge ramification of you not putting in the extra hours yeah. as when you're a doctor it could be a dentist it could be a uh, addiction psychiatrist it could be an optometrist that one less eye exam that one less root canal you do is gonna have you know impacts on that person's life so there is a lot of guilt that leads to the burnout i find and you mentioned a lot of things that I want to come back to, like the acting and being a parent. Yeah. But maybe we could backtrack here and maybe tell me if you could give me and, and, and the listeners maybe the worst parts of the job and the best parts of the job. Um, and then to like add to that, what is something that, you know, you just didn't learn in your education that you've learned while practicing that like you weren't prepared for, so to speak? Yeah, so I, I think easily the best parts of the job, especially from the drug treatment uh, point of things when people do well and they flourish they reconnect with their families they get uh, they obtain their sobriety or whatever their goal is and they're working they're living a like normal life opposed to yeah. where they were at before that's the best part especially if they're young and they turn things around and uh, and start flourishing you can't beat that and it makes it worth it even all the the difficult things that you have to go through to to be in the field and I think uh, the most difficult part now, and I don't think anyone really prepares you for that, especially as a student, when you're just getting into rotations and engaging with people, you're trying to impress the attending, you're trying to do, study for your exams, and you have all these outside distractions. But like kind of going back to what we were talking about, it can be emotionally draining and mentally draining 
especially after you, after you do it a while. So I do tell um, any res resident or medical student, well, more, more students who are going into the field and even just people who are thinking about counseling is that it can be a little bit difficult. And if you're not mentally prepared for that, it's kind of a, a shocker. And then I would also say when I was a medical student, I didn't realize how much the training of psychiatry would be geared towards doing medicine um, and working in that aspect of things, opposed to like what a psychologist does. And that's probably like lack of research on my part and really getting in depth with it. But part of that is because of the rotations I was doing, it was just really engaging people and talking with them and my, minor adjustments for medications because of where I was working. So I think that might take some people by surprise, but you can practice how you want to. And I would also say that just because you were trained a certain way or your experiences um, that were provided to you only gave you a certain aspect to it, it doesn't mean you're stuck in that uh, realm of practice. You can practice how you want. So I'm a less is more kind of guy. I'm, I'm trying not to be a pill pusher. And don't get me wrong, medicines have their time and, and place. So um, you can practice how you want is kind of what mm -hmm. I would say with that and then the, the yeah so this, that's the good and the bad the the bad is like the emotional drain the mental kind of stuff we were touching on um when it doesn't work as well i mean a lot of the times unfortunately it doesn't work but when it does that's the beautiful thing of it yeah I, yeah i can imagine when you have those patients obviously you're not supposed to be emotionally attached to your patients and, and it's very hard i would argue not to and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next. But yeah, when you see someone flourish and, and get over, you know, that hurdle that they're really struggling with and reconnect with their family and whatnot, I can't imagine how good of a feeling that must be to play, you know, a part in that person's story. And you talked about fatherhood and congratulations coming up on, on child number three. Um, you obviously also have two other children. How has being a father changed you as a doctor? Because you already alluded to it where, when you become a parent, you kind of see everyone as a child, or at least you're able to look back into their life and be like, this was someone's child one day. Um, and, and now they're obviously an adult, but have you found it's made you a better doctor? Have you found it's made your job maybe harder where you're, you are more emotionally invested? Maybe walk me through how being a father has, has it impacted you as a doctor. Yeah, I think it totally has because you look at the whole picture even more than before. And like kind of going back to the no one, starts off that way that they want to end up where they're at with the things that they're dealing with in adulthood or even as teenagers. So having a bit more, a lot more compassion for that and uh, perspective, I think has really changed me and to be more patient as well and uh, to understand where people are coming from. And I think it's, it's really opened my eyes to that aspect. And on the flip side of things, I think, it's a double-edged sword. You worry about your kids too. I mean, trauma is a huge part of, of addiction and mental health. And you worry about the trauma that you might be inflicting on your kids or what they can experience outside of the home. Um, so being on edge with that a little bit, but uh, the way I navigate that is I, I have to let them grow too as individuals as well. And like you were kind of talking about before is that, you know, culturally as well, there's the expectation of taking care of parents or uh, fulfilling what it is that your family wants you to do or be. One thing I read that's very helpful for me to help them grow as people, because I want, I see the mental health implications of like the parent child relationship, right? That's in my face 24 seven. And 
it's probably more just because I have my own kids, but I try to look at it as like, instead of this child's lucky to have me or um, this child is, is part of me, I, I try to reframe it that uh, I'm lucky to be the parent of this child for their individual characteristics of wherever their life trajectory is, if that makes sense, and just to help guide them along the way. Yeah, that's a that's a nice way of looking at it. I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak about it that way. Cause it's like, I put you on this worth, you know, it's like, you're lucky to be my child. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard a parent say, oh no, I'm lucky to be the parent of this kid. Unless the kid is just like, <laughs> uh, it's God's gift to earth, right? But uh, you don't find that out till, till they're a lot older and they're not, you know, painting on the walls or driving <laughs> your car through the garage or whatever the case is. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was actually going to ask as well, because there's obviously that side of being a father now that's made you maybe more empathetic than before or being able to relate to, you know, clients and, and sorry, patients and what they're sort of going through because of maybe what they went through when they were growing up. But how do you, as a result of that, still remain detached from some of the stories that you hear how do you balance that out because there's the one side of the empathy then there's the other side of you are still their doctor you can't get emotionally invested in these in these patients and you need to stay objective how do you balance that yeah it's a, it's a great question sometimes it's easier than other times i think it just depends on the case and how you're feeling that day as well but i think it goes back to having that cup full enough to help others and the other thing is, is i try to think of it as this person needs me to be detached to give them the best uh, information and treatment possible, right? Because if I'm getting invested, that kind of clouds my own judgments of making decisions or what they should or shouldn't do. And that's not helpful to them. And so I think just having that, that block there um, is really helpful. And I think it's important too, because the more emotionally invested you are, the more, the more difficult of a time you're going to have as, as time goes by. And the other thing is whether I get worked up or not um, or emotionally distraught or um, that's not going to change what the person's been through or what they experience, right? Whether even if they see me or not, this will exist, unfortunately, whether I see them or not. So I kind of look at it as like a, a separate aspect of things. It, it's going to happen no matter, no matter what, unfortunately, or has happened no matter what. So I can't change that. But what I can change is the engagement and what we can do moving forward. So that's kind of how I, I navigate that situation. Yeah, like I said, some days are easier than others, kind of where, where I am in my own headspace. But uh, we can do as much as we can, if that makes sense. Yeah, I do like that response of the best way to actually be the best doctor you could be is by being objective because that's what this person needs because, yeah, this situation would exist whether you were there or not. Um and I guess speaking of balancing um, between, you know, being empathetic and not, how do you, it's a different gear here, but how do you balance your work with acting? We touched on it earlier that you keep a little bit more flexibility in your schedule by having one day, it's kind of like a, a flex day or a buffer day. Yeah. But obviously being a doctor, running your own clinic is a very demanding career in and of itself. And then acting is demanding in a different type of way where you have to be nimble and ready to sort of change on the fly. How do you balance those two uh, between acting and, and being a doctor? Yeah, I think, and people ask me that a lot. And I think it comes down to being as flexible as possible with time. And that's tough, right? Especially if you have a family life too. And I'm, I'm kind of fortunate. I don't have like the largest peer group as well. So I don't have to worry about socializing as much. That part of my life is not as full as maybe other people. And I think having that buffer day is really important. And some people can't 
afford to do that. And I, I understand just because of, you know, financial needs and, and whatnot. So it's different for everyone. I'm fortunate I can be a little bit more flexible in that regard. But what I would say is if you really wanted to do it or anything, it doesn't have to be acting, is that there's going to be sacrifice somewhere, right? And it's just what you're willing to sacrifice. So for me, it is that socializing uh, peer time. And it's a little easier because I don't have that big of a group. Um, but I won't cut out on the family time as much, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then I work out at weird hours, you know, that kind of thing, or I'll audition at weird hours. So you kind of try to have to make it fit where you can. And, and it's, again, sometimes it's easier than others, right? And it can get very frustrating. And that's what I would say, like, kind of going back to the passion thing is that your passions are always not going to be rosy and great and, and beautiful. Um, it can be very difficult and disheartening and discouraging. And, and I've asked myself many times, like, why am I, why am I even doing the acting thing? Like, why, why am I, why am I taking the time to do this? And, I, and sometimes I don't always have the answer, but it's always something that's been there at the back of my mind. Just keep doing it and doing it. I've come to a point where I didn't think I could do a commercial and I did, did a commercial. I didn't think I could be on a TV show. I've been on a TV show. I didn't think I could do a movie and a movie. So you know, and I don't say that to toot my own horn. I, I say this to anyone is that if there's something you want to do, don't sell yourself short, just try and you never know what will happen. So I, I think I just keep trying to push the envelope and that's that's the drive. And I, I'm also coming from a place of privilege and, and a huge amount of support. Like I wouldn't be able to do it without the support of my, my parents and my brothers uh, and my wife. And it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I know not everyone has that. Um, and, and, and I also want to say that sometimes they're not always the best supports either. And that's just being human, right? So ultimately, it does have to come down to to you and what you want to pursue and, and figuring things out. And I, and I think that's what life's about, too, is like you said, the word balance, right? I think that's such a huge key thing. It's about striving for that, but I don't think it's ever possible to achieve perfect balance, if that makes sense. I agree. I don't think they're... I don't know anyone whose life is perfectly balanced. I, I heard it on a podcast or something. I don't remember where, but they said something about there being seasons of balance. So there'll be certain mm -hmm. times where your career is sort of the main thing. Then there's other seasons and these seasons could be, I don't know, measured in weeks or months or years. I don't know how you want to measure it, but there's different seasons of balance where certain parts you're maybe more social, certain parts you're more focused on your career. Maybe other parts you're more focused on your family and other parts you may be more focused on your hobbies. I have clients right now who like, probably play golf more than they work right now. And I'm like, yeah, you got to find where yeah. that balance is for you. Yeah. And I guess speaking on that, because I hope this doesn't sound weird to you, but it's almost socially acceptable for, you know, guys who have a great profession, they're good family men or whatever, to spend hours playing golf. Um, and it doesn't take away from their, I don't know, their, their profession or their career, yeah. or how good they might be at their job. Yeah. If anything, you might think they're better at their job because they play golf so much because that means they have lots of free time or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask, have you felt a stigma from others because of your acting, whether that's from, you know, existing patients or whether that is from colleagues? Mm -hmm. Has anyone ever said like, hey, you're this on one side, this serious stone cold profession in a sense, being a doctor, I'm in a very highly respected profession, whereas being an actor is seen more as expressive uh, depending on the circle you're in, maybe not taken as seriously. Have you felt anyone discredit you or look at you differently because of the acting? Uh, I'm pretty lucky because 
no one's really said anything, at least, at least in my face, right? But I mean, when I initially started, it's kind of like, like people would give a look like, really? Like, what? why would you do that? You know, what have you been in? And I, at that time, I was like, oh, nothing. I don't know. I'm just starting out kind of thing. So it, that was kind of weird. And it has come up a couple of times with older doctors, especially. Yeah. Um, but I think people around my age, younger, are like, oh, that's cool um kind of thing and I don't tell I've only told a couple patients about it um but outside of that I keep it kind of very private but now it's it's out there I guess and I guess I'm on Instagram too but I'm not that big on Instagram or anything so no one really knows and I haven't come across that too much and the other thing I'd say is like if you are uh thinking of going into medical school or you are a medical student now or a resident and you don't have to be like a pure academic and like super straight laced doctor. And I think that's sometimes people take the job very seriously, but I try to keep it like very real with my patients and I'm very laid back in terms of my personality or any talks I do. Um, so I'm not an academic by any means and I'm not like quoting studies and things like that. And you want to be aware of them and <laughs> practice evidence-based medicine, but you don't need to like walk, be a walking textbook is what I'm saying. So I, I think people appreciate that. I've never had anyone really bash bash that. And in, on the other side of things, when you tell actors about like or anyone, they're like, "Oh, that's cool. Like, are you kidding me?" Like, um, and I don't, I don't try to talk about it too much either. Like, of course, it comes up sometimes, and some people know, like, they read my resume or whatever, and they're like, "Oh, you're a doctor too. Cool." Um, so yeah, I haven't had really negative experience with that. I think the the difficulty comes with just balancing the time and like being available for both things or like all in all out on either side of things for sure. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause I always wondered, I was like, okay, well, like, I don't know if I was to go and play golf three times a week and for three hours at a time, that wouldn't be considered like weird or anything. It wouldn't yeah, be considered yeah. out of the norm because this is so unique. I don't know a lot of people who are doctors and actors. Like I probably like one of 10 in the whole world. I, I could be <laughs> wrong, but like how many people do you know who are addiction psychiatrists and then actors um, as well so I was like because it's so unique I wonder if you got any you know sort of weird looks or, or weird comments so I'm glad that you haven't it's really nice to actually hear that yeah it's nice and there are some people there's a couple there's a couple in BC I know that do have done both and okay. yeah and I think one of them actually um, just quit uh, medicine altogether and just acting mm -hmm. full time so I mean it's, it's definitely there I'm sure in other parts of the world but I appreciate that and I mean, I'm sure it's not like the most common thing, but by any means, but I, I think people can put themselves in box, boxes a lot of times. Yeah. And like I said, you, you see, you're, you're not stuck in this box and, and you may not have, especially again, I'm going back to the cultural minority thing, because that's a big thing for us, right? I mean, it's a real, very real thing and people struggle with that. So you really got to be your, your best supporter at the end of the day, whether you have tons of support or or none, it all kind of starts from here, right? Because you can have a million people believing in you, but if you don't believe in yourself to do what you want, you won't go and do it. And if you have no one believing in you, it's the same thing to kind of everything begins and ends here, if that makes sense. Yeah, you talked about Conor McGregor earlier and yeah, again, not everyone likes him, but <laughs> I'm in the same boat as you where early in his career, I was like, I was such a fan of this guy. It, it, it's hard to differentiate when you look at sports of, the athlete and the person yeah. as an athlete, I just had this huge admiration for him because of that self-belief, how confident he was in his skills, speaking things into existence and then going and doing them. But he's one of those guys who just embodies what you just said. He had the same confidence 
that he has now as this, you know, double champ, loads of money, ultra successful. Yeah. I'm sure he's taken it much farther than he actually thought he would go. But he had the same confidence when, you know, he was on welfare fighting his first fight in the UFC. And I fully agree with you. That confidence has to start inside. It can't come from external sources. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's exactly why I liked him too. And I mean, like my like when I finished residency, I quoted him um for like my end of speech or whatever kind of thing. Um, where they ask us what's your favorite quote. And then like like a few months later, he punches that old guy in the face where I'm like, oh man, why Yeah, you have like the Nelson Mandela <laughs> quotes and then you have Conor yeah. McGregor, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like Okay, maybe not the best, but yeah, but. yeah. I'm probably people probably are saying things behind my back, like this guy, like McGregor yeah. acting. What the hell's wrong with him? Yeah, but, uh, I mean, it's it's amazing the in his trajectory as well. It, it's years of work, but he did it fairly quickly as well too. And then it's I always like going back to this example. He's an example of it that he's a double uh, weight class champ, and then after he does it, and then a bunch of people do it, and it kind of. I think about the four minute mile people thought it was humanly impossible to do it. And then someone breaks it. And now high school kids break that four minute mile, which is, it's like someone has to be the first. So why not you, whoever that is for whatever you want. I love that you said that. I view it as someone has to give you permission that you can be great. And, and it's sad that we need someone out there to do that for us. But I do think as humans, someone has to be that crazy person that gives you permission that, Hey, this is doable. And like, on, in my own situation, I'm a big fan of the artist Russ. He's, he's a rapper, but he's also, so he raps, he sings, he writes his own music, he produces his own beats, and he owns all of his music. And he's this multidisciplined artist. And he is my biggest inspiration, hands down, on, on, because of what he did in music, he gave me inspiration that I can be a financial planner, I can do investments, I can do insurance, I can do mortgages, White Coat can be this, you know, multidisciplined firm, the same way he is. And someone gave me that permission. Um, that's one of my biggest inspirations. And I ask all my clients the same three questions. One of them being, who is your biggest inspiration if it's one person or who are your biggest inspirations if it's more than one person? And this could be, you know, within your family, this could be someone on like a grand scale like Conor McGregor, but who is that for you? Well, I'd say like, as cliche as it is, but when you have kids, like that's a huge inspiration to do more and be more and be more, more ambitious uh, for your family. So that's, that's a big one. And this is my family in general. Uh, I think having that, that expectation to do well, of course, that's, I don't know if that would be inspiring or pressure <laughs> inducing. And, and so family is, is a big one. And then in terms of, um, athletes wise, non, non-fictional characters wise, cause I, I, I love, I love fictional characters as well, but I have to say it and people are going to give me slack, like Conor McGregor, is a big one. Methy is a is a huge one as well. You know, you're looking at at the most unass- one of the most unassuming kind of people is, uh, you know, in terms of an athlete and perseverance and like kind of family man aspect of things. It's it's shocking that nothing you know tragic or or very like um, uh, controversial. Yeah, controversial. Yeah, exactly controversial. But it was kind of shocking to me. So. Uh, I think he's an amazing athlete and, and you know, five, seven to be like the best player on the planet for the biggest sports. And it is incredible to be as humble as he is. I think that's amazing. And then the other big one for me is Bruce Lee. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is he's a martial artist and then an, an actor. And uh, in his time when he uh, got very big and I'm reading his uh, an, 
It's, it's a biography about him. Uh, it's it's very, very good. And his perseverance and his push and self-belief, even when he, he struggled a lot, and to be as big as he was at the time as well, um, being Asian and, and a minority and to push through that and to become like, I mean, he's iconic now. I think yeah. that's absolutely, absolutely incredible. And of course, there's, there's a ton, but I would say those are like the three big ones. I would say like top three for sure. Yeah. And then yeah, of course, I, you have nonfiction as well, right? <laughs> yeah, then you have the ones who don't exist in real life. Exactly. Like, I don't know if you watch, I know clients and friends who are like Harvey Specter is like, one of my friends is a lawyer and Harvey Specter is like his idol. I was like, you know, he doesn't exist, right? He's like, I don't care. He's my idol. And I was like, whatever works for you, whatever pushes you to go a little further, whoever gives you permission that you could do that crazy idea yeah. or be that person that you really want to be. It's really just this weird sense of permission of like, hey, kid, you could do it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like, um, like, I like the Mandalorian a lot, you know, he, he when the show came out, I was a new father. So that was like something I identified with. And I always you always find those characters cool that, uh, you know, that are seen standalone and very, you know, tough, not afraid to take on like six people at once kind of thing. And that's just like the, the 90s uh, action movies, like where I grew up watching like Jackie Chan or Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, so that's probably why I like, you know, like kind of going back to that martial arts so much, or even just film in general. Um, and then you have all the Marvel, Marvel superheroes, but a character like Vegeta as well is like very cool, you know, like doesn't give up. John Wick is a huge, that's a huge one as well. So not to nerd out here, but those are you know, big parts of, I have that to say, like big parts of who, who I am too. Yeah. No, I'm all for it. Whatever. Like, sounds weird. Whatever floats your boat, like whatever, <laughs> like I said, pushes you or gives you something to strive towards of being your best self, yeah. in my eyes, is, is nothing but a positive thing. Um, moving on here with sticking to the sort of the, the big three I ask, the second question is, what's next for you personally as JP um, and then professionally as Dr. Pata? Yeah, so I think as JP, like in terms of the acting game and stuff, uh, I've done a few things now, which is great. And I'm very fortunate for that. And I want to do bigger roles and in bigger productions and see how how far that goes. So kind of manifesting what I'd like to see for myself in the next kind of year or so. And I'm I'm putting it out there that I'd like to do like maybe a guest star role or like even like a series re regular or uh, recurring role on a on a TV show. So that's that's my goal for the next let's see 12 to 18 months kind of thing. And then in terms of my practice, I think with how busy we are is just continuing to help people um, and be available to them as much as possible and do the best I can. Um, and then also one thing I want to take the approach on moving forward is to read more and learn more and, and gather information about treatments that can be as helpful to as people as possible, sharpen, sharpen my skills and, um, and to, and for both, both worlds is, it's not take things too too seriously where you burn yourself into the ground and still have family time and, and find that um uh, that that ever distance balance that we'll we'll never get, but yeah. you know, to 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 live within the seasons and within the moment. And I think that's that's an important thing. That I, I turn uh 35 in March. And I, I think about the advice that people give whenever you ask them, like, what is it you would tell the younger person? And it's over and over. It's like, enjoy the time that you're in now. Enjoy the time, you're, whether it's 50, 60, 70, 80, they're always going to tell the decade before them, enjoy what it is. And I think 
that is my goal moving forward outside of everything career-wise is to truly enjoy the moment because time is is the the most valuable currency that we have yeah as a as a financial planner i would i would second that is yeah no amount of money ever buys back any time i don't know who said that but it's the it's the biggest truth in the world you would give up Perfect. everything for an extra 10 years or five years or I don't know, 30 minutes with your loved one to say yeah. goodbye before something tragic happens. So it's like my time is the ultimate currency. Um, but given that this is the dollars and doctor show, my final sort of of the big three is ask all my guests is what would you say has been the biggest financial mistake you've ever made in your career so far? Um, and then on the flip side, what would you say has been the smartest financial decision you've ever made? I think the biggest mistake, which has, I got to make an appointment with you later, <laughs> is not taking finances seriously from an earlier point in my career, even starting from residency or even before that, depending on the situation someone's in. For me, it was really residency onward. I was kind of just going through the motions of oh, paychecks coming in. It's okay. So it wasn't really like future oriented. Obviously, kids change that as well. So I think for me, the biggest financial mistake is not planning more for the future in uh, in a more directive way, if that makes sense. Fair enough. What would you say the best financial decision you've made is? And this could be an investment. This could be a purchase. This could, honestly, it could be anything. The best financial decision I made was to get into the housing market with help initially, and then um, and then to sell when I when we thought was a good time as well. That really helped and changed things for me. Um, and then I, I think the, like the best advice wise, what I've gotten and kind of going back to the time thing is that when you are buying something or, uh, thinking of how much something costs, think of it as the amount of time that costs opposed to the, 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 uh, monetary value, if that makes sense. And that kind of puts into perspective, like how many consults, how many hours, how many, you know, it really changes things and living within your means as, as simple as that sounds. Um, and I think especially this is the doctors and dollars podcast and the doctors, you know, go from very little money and in income, especially from residency to getting a lot more. And then you have loans and bills and stuff you want to pay for. But if you're balling out and, and buying all like designer clothes, again, I'm fortunate I dress like shit anyway. So uh, you can see like, you know, this is like a standard outfit. But if you're you're you make more, you spend more, you're not you'll never catch up. You'll still be a square one kind of thing. So. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right there with that lifestyle inflation creeps in. But also when you're young, I call it the adulting avalanche. You're hit with like, you know, student loans, you buy your first car, buy your first house, get married, maybe start a clinic, you know, and you have children and like all this happens before you're 40. That's really only like 10 to 15 years, depending on when you finish school, that you're hit with all these financial responsibilities. And so, you know, just not being mindful of your budget or not being mindful of your spending. It's so easy to just spend so much extra money my math might be wrong here but i think you only need to spend like 27 dollars a day and that could be on like food to spend 10 grand a year just extra oh, like God. what where'd that, how yeah, that like, right and it's like we've all done it we've all looked at our credit card statement and been like oh they must be fraud someone stole my credit card and you look at it you're like no i'm an idiot i just spend way too much money on things yeah, i don't need and so we're all guilty of it as a financial planner i am guilty of it we all are it's mainly just about giving yourself grace and learning from your mistakes. So I'm glad you brought that point up. Jeez, that's a, that's, a, I didn't know that stat. It's crazy. I feel like I, I deserve a share in Starbucks now for the amount of money. Right. I, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to quickly do the math right here. 
Yeah, $27 a day is $9,855 extra. And that's very easy to do. Like, you know, that's like, I don't know, you just grab sushi on your way home from work <laughs> and you grab Starbucks and boom, you got your 30 bucks, right? And it's very, very common for it to happen. Yeah. Um, I guess to, to sort of wrap this episode up, do you have any, let's say, advice to your fellow doctors that are practicing or any advice to, you know, students, new grads, people in residency or just anyone listening to this podcast in general? The, the floor is completely yours. Any final message for, for anyone listening? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that you can translate over to any aspect of your life that you are trying to be successful in or any goal you're trying to achieve is you, you, we talk about permission from others to, to be great, but you, you don't always need that. And it just because someone else uh, hasn't done it or bashes the idea of doing it. I, I was told that I wouldn't be able to come back to Canada and practice, but I've done it. And I'm not even the best student that you've heard earlier in this podcast that anything is possible. And I remember there was a very long write-up done, but why it was like impossible to come back to Canada. But if you do your own research, and this is just some random forum nonsense, and we get caught up in the internet nowadays, so I think the biggest thing is like, if you believe in something, you want something done, do your own research to get it done, figure out a plan and stick to it and keep your head down and anything's possible. That's what I'd say. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. And that's a, a nod to Messi because yeah, anything is possible. It really is like it, the situations I've come across or seen with clients or just people in general, you're like, how did this person do that? And what you just said about coming back to Canada is not the first time I've heard that. I've heard that from multiple clients, from multiple people that I know of yeah it's like a death sentence once you leave canada for medicine you're not ever coming back and yeah. time and time again people make it back yeah. just about having that plan executing it and then putting in that sweat right putting in the sweat equity and just working hard and making it happen yeah honestly thank you so much for this i i know you're busy you got the dogs you got the girls to go play with um so thank you for being a guest on the podcast um i really do appreciate you taking the time and, and doing this especially on a weekend Oh, no, thanks for having me. It was great. I enjoyed our conversation. And that concludes our 14th episode of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Dr. JP Pada for coming on the podcast, talking about his journey, and explaining his life outside of medicine. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Pada, I've included his social media links in the show notes to this episode. This episode was brought to you by White Coat Financial. Our goal at White Coat Financial is to change the financial planning industry by combining a fiduciary duty with a one-stop shop experience for our clients. If you're a Canadian doctor and you're looking for financial advice on mortgages, investing, insurance, taxes, or any other financial matters, visit our website, www.whitecoatfinancial.ca. On our website, you'll be able to schedule a free initial consultation to learn about how White Coat Financial can help you protect your income, grow your money, and live better. If you have any questions or feedback for us, you can email me directly at gurthage at whitecoatfinancial.ca. Thank you for your attention, thank you for your time, and thank you for your ongoing support. I look forward to speaking with you soon. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not to be taken as financial advice. While the host of this podcast is a registered financial planner, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as financial advice. 
Before making any financial decisions, you should always consult with a financial professional about your unique circumstances and personal situation. The hosts and guests of this podcast are not responsible for any errors or omissions or for any actions taken based on the information provided in this podcast. It is the responsibility of the listener to do their own due diligence and make informed financial decisions.